0: Progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Yes, today is Friday, January 14th, and this is DPP, the end of Parsha's Beshalach. We're going to conclude it with the last few readings. We have a little bit of catch-up to do. Not catch-up, that's something else. That's a different uh, accoutrement. This is some catch-up. And we got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen so that you can see what I'm saying. And we will take it away. All right. We are up to reading number five. But at the end of reading four, I want to add on a little bit of more details. At the end of reading four, we read how they came to a place called Marah where they could not drink water from Marah because it was bitter. And then God tells Moses... To take a piece of wood and cast it into the water and the water became sweet and that was the birth of sweet water that was my joke the other day my, my goal is not to repeat my bad jokes my goal is to share with you an additional insight and that is that th- what w- according to some commentaries and uh, more mystical commentaries the wood that is being thrown into the water the wood is a euphemism for Torah. Why? Because Torah is called a tree of life, right? Eitz chayim Hi. It's a tree of life to those who hold on to it. So the Torah is like the wood. So what happens when the world seems to be a bitter place? When life itself has a bitter taste to it, right? Life is water, water is life. What happens when, when, when the water, when life tastes bitter? Then we have to throw a little bit of Torah in there. Study Torah with a Torah perspective. Not that Torah magically fixes things, but it gives us a perspective that makes life a little bit sweeter and definitely more manageable. That's a quick insight onto what was something we read a few days ago. Let's begin with reading five, last verse of chapter 15. Again, this is the, these are the Jewish travels post-Exodus and post-splitting of the sea. And post collapsing of the sea on the Egyptians. Okay, Exodus chapter 15. They came to Elim, and there there were 12 water fountains and 70 palms, and they encamped there by the water. Can you imagine? Sounds like the Bellagio. Yeah, they get there. Anybody familiar with the Bellagio in Vegas? All right, so 12 water fountains, 70 palm trees. Ah, it's beautiful. By the way, of course, these numbers have significance. Twelve water fountains, one for each tribe. Every tribe has its own water source. Not that every tribe has its own, you know, different reality and religion. It's all the same Judaism. But this gives space for diversity even within Judaism. Twelve tribes, twelve water fountains. Famously, it says in the Medrash, I didn't mention it, but I'll mention it now. When the sea split... It didn't split into one highway. There were 12 lanes, 12 different lanes that the 12 tribes could each go through. They each had their own lane, their own space to, uh, to traverse. The, the idea of, of individuality and diversity is very powerful. Seventy palms is a reference to the 70 elders that are like palm trees. Anyway, a palm tree is different than a cedar. Sometimes it refers to, um, in, in Scripture, it uses the, the, uh, the imagery of a cedar tree. Sometimes a palm tree. What's the difference? A cedar grows really tall, but it doesn't give any fruit. A palm tree grows less tall. It grows shorter, but it gives fruit, like a date palm tree. So it gives, it gives fruit. And the message is there's two types of righteous people. There are those that are, all, that are concerned about their self-growth, and they, and, they, and, and they grow, and they grow really tall and strong and proud, and that's great, but they're not about sharing with the other. And then there is the palm tree, tzaddik, who doesn't worry so much about themselves, but is sharing with others, and that's really the ideal. So the 70 palms is really the ideal model of a human being, less concerned about personal growth and personal accomplishments, and more about I guess we would call it more of a team player. You have, like in athletics, in sports, you have just great individual talents and then you have great teammates. And sometimes, you know, the great of the great is like, wow, amazing, but they never won anything because maybe they weren't a great teammate. Maybe they also had a lousy team around them, but that's another story. But, but then you have the great, the great sharer, and that's really that's true greatness. To elevate everyone around yourself is the true mark of greatness? All right, Exodus chapter sixteen. Let's uh-huh. go. Yeah. Excuse me. So, who are the seventy? I mean, what does the seventy elders represent? There, there were set. Well, I mean, there, there was a council of elders that, that, that they had already in Egypt. That says that Moses spoke to the elders and conveyed the message. There was already this group of senior leaders, leadership. That, that numbered seventy. Um, why seventy specifically? There's different ideas. Uh, I can't tell you practically why. I mean, Kabbalah has an, an, an insight, the seven Svirot times 10, which is the, the completion of all seven. I, there are different angles on it, but on a practical level, I'm not sure. Okay, so Exodus chapter 16, verse one. They journeyed from Elim, and the entire community of the children of Israel came to the desert of Sin, which is really, yeah, no, it's Sin, yeah. But it's not Sin like we know Sin. It's a Hebrew name, which is between Elim and Sinai. Well, that's significant. And they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, that's the 15th of ER, after the departure from the land of Egypt. The entire community of children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The children of Israel said to them, If only, listen to this, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to our fill. They said, In Egypt, we had so much food. There were pots of meat, there was bread. Galore. For you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire congregation to death. We have no food. Basically, this is a very dramatic way of saying we're hungry. Instead of asking for food, they started kvetching. Why? I guess it's Jewish tradition to kvetch, I guess. Verse 4. So the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm going to rain down for you bread from heaven. We call this the manna. And the people shall go out and gather what is needed for the day so that I can test them whether or not they will follow my teaching. And that means that every day it's going to fall. And only what is needed for the day should be gathered. No extra, no leftovers. Only what you need for the day gather gather on that day every morning. And it shall be on the sixth day, Friday, that when they prepare what they will bring, it will be double of what they gather every day. So on Friday you're going to get double amount to eat on Friday and Shabbat because on Shabbat don't the implication is don't go out to gather. Thereupon Moses and Aaron said to the children of Israel in the evening, "You shall know that the Lord brought you out of the land of Egypt. God's got you, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord when He hears your complaints against the Lord. But of what significance are we that you make the people complain against us? In other words." God is going to show his miracle. But why are you complaining to us like we have anything to do with this? If you want to ask for, for food from Hashem, go pray to God. But don't, don't turn against us. Like we're not, we're not the bad guys here. Not that God is the bad guy either, but there's a, there's a protocol. They're trying to explain to the people, like, less fetching, more praying. If you want, if you want something, go to, the, go to the source. Anyway, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and bread in the morning with which to become sated, when the Lord hears your complaints, which, are, which you are making the people complain against him, but of what significance are we? Not against us or your complaints, but against the Lord. Again, they're saying God's going to take care of you, but why are you angrily mobbing, ganging up against us, right? You want food? Go to God and, and don't complain either to God, but, but ask for it. But to complain to us is just misguided energy. This is Moses. This was really the first time. Well, by the sea, there was also a little bit of anxiety, but that's understood. I guess this is also understood they were hungry Jews and food, right? Don't get in the way if, you know, hungry Jews are always uh, a stampede away. Like, uh, you know, ne- never, never hold back that and expect good results. Nonetheless, Moses is saying there's a right way and a wrong way to go about it. And uh, less kvetching, more, more praying, as I said before. We wish that the Jews would have taken heed to this and, and throughout the 40 years. Not complained, but unfortunately, this is the first of, of several episodes like this. And Moses said to Aaron, say to the entire community of the children of Israel, draw near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Tell the people that God has heard them. And it came, by the way, he heard your complaints, not your prayers, your complaints. Right. Let's understand what, what, it, what it was. And it came to pass when Aaron spoke to the entire community of the children of Israel that they turned toward the desert, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. There was always a cloud by day, but now they could see a divine energy. So it was anyway a miraculous cloud, but now they could really see the divine energy in the cloud, and now they paid attention. Okay, so what we have in this reading so far, the, the primary idea here is They were asking for food, complaining that in Egypt they had so much better. They had meat and they had bread. They could eat. Now, meanwhile, they were slaves and being beaten all day. Nonetheless, they had food. And now they're complaining. We're in the desert. We're going to die in the desert. There's no food. God says there's going to be heavenly food. Just watch. Moses says, take it easy. God has heard your complaints. So the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them, saying, In the afternoon you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be sated with bread. I'll give you meat in the afternoon and bread, the manna from heaven, in the morning. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass in the evening that the quails went up and covered the camp. What quails? Miracle quails. Quails. Quails came and enveloped the whole camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. So, in the evening they had quails, they had what to eat, they had meat, quail meat. I can't tell you what it tastes like, never had it, but I guess they did. I also guess the quails are kosher, that's the implication, right? What is it? Sorry, Drew? I said it tastes like chicken, I'm sure. I'm sure, I'm sure. exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Chicken of the sky, as they say. Um, so the quails covered the camp, so they had meat. And in the morning, listen to this, there was a layer of dew around the camp. Now the layer of dew went up, it lifted with the sun, with the heat, right? And behold, on the surface of the desert, a fine, bare substance, as fine as frost on the ground. There was like white, white, frost, kind of looked like frost. Covered. This might be Sunday in Atlanta. It's supposed to snow or rain. I have no faith. My kids are like, it's going to be a snow day. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like Atlanta, it's probably going to end up being rain and just, I mean, we need rain. Rain is good, but like, don't break out the sleds just yet. Who knows? It could be. But, but anyway, this was frost in the desert. What is that? When the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, it is manna. Because they did not know what it is, what it was. Mun almost means. Let's see if Rashi tells us what, what the word mun means. And Moses said to them, It is the bread. Oh, this is edible. This is edible frost. It's not, it's not just something to crunch with your boots. This is um, this is bread. This is the food that the Lord has given you to eat. Let's look at Rashi here. Let's see if we get some insights. Rashi says man means it's a preparation of food, like the king allotted them. It's an allotment. Basically, man means an allotment, like a a designation, something allotted. So they said, oh, this is what we've been allotted from God. But they didn't know what it was. They didn't know exactly the nature of it. And and Moses clarified, yeah, this is the food that, that was promised. This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Now Moses tells them the stipulations regarding the month. This was the first day that they got it, but there are rules. Gather of it, each one according to his eating capacity. An omer for each person, which I explained Wednesday night in the class, is pretty much three and a half pounds of food. An omer is three and a half pounds, which is right in the range of what a human being average, on average, eats every day. So gather an omer according to the number of persons, each one for those in his tent you shall take. So not an omer per household, an omer per person in the household. That's what it says. According to the number of persons, each one for those in his tent. That means household, tent hold, whatever. And the children of Israel did so. They gathered, both the one who gathered much and the one who gathered little. Listen to this. People didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't gather an omer. Some gathered a lot and some gathered a little. But when they got home, something miraculous happened. They measured it with an omer on a scale. And whoever gathered much did not have more. And whoever gathered little did not have less. Each one according to his eating capacity, they gathered. Everyone gathered what they thought they would want, they thought they could eat. But when they got home, it was exactly an omer. Per person. Now that was one, that was one kind of um, interesting. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, detail. Now, next, Moses said to them, Let no one leave over any of it until morning. So no leftovers. Eat your food and eat the omer of the man, and that's and the manna, and that's it. Don't leave it over to the morning. But some men, some men, did not, always the men, did not obey Moses. And they left over some of it until morning. And it bred worms and became putrid. It got spoiled. It became rancid. And Moses became angry with them. Now, which are these men that didn't listen to Moses, didn't listen to God? It's the same two people that were always causing problems. Their names were Dasan and Aviram, or Dathan and Abiram, same, same names. These were the guys that were fighting in Egypt when Moses said, don't hit the other guy. And then he says, well, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian. Remember that whole story? And they kind of leaked the information about Moses killing the Egyptian the day before. Either way, these were the ones that didn't, they, they had a beef with Moses the whole time. They didn't listen to Moses. You know what you're talking about. We're going to save some for tomorrow. For breakfast they saved it and it became putrid and moses became angry with him they gathered it okay next they gathered it morning by morning every morning each one according to his eating capacity and when the sun grew hot it melted i guess that means when the sun grew hot in the um, outside it melted in the field i uh, sorry in the desert so they had to gather it i guess earlier in the morning when it you know prior to melting otherwise liquefied mana against the, the, the sand. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. We call that a sandwich, but that joke was already made Wednesday night. Okay, it came to pass on the sixth day, Friday, today, it's Friday, that they gathered a double portion of bread. By the way, this is the source of having two loaves of challah on our Shabbat table. At, at the meal, we have two loaves of challah or two um, dinner rolls, whatever. Two items of bread because that's how it was with the manna. They had a double portion. Two omers for each one. Not one, two omers. And all the princes of the community came and reported to Moses. said, Moses, what's going on? Why why do we have two omers? So he said to them, Ah, I know why. That's what the Lord spoke. The Lord told me, saying tomorrow is a rest day, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Right? Tomorrow is Shabbos. So bake whatever you wish to bake today. Cook whatever you wish to cook today. And all the rest leave over until morning. Now you're supposed to leave over. Every other day, don't leave over. On Friday, you get two omers, double portion. You're supposed to cook and bake for two days and you're supposed to leave it over to the next day because on Shabbos no gathering, no cooking, no baking. Just relax and enjoy. So this time, they, they left it over until morning, Shabbos morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not become putrid, and not a worm was in it. Magically, it was good. It was fine. And Moses said on Shabbos, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Eat what you left over because you're not going to get any new stuff. No new manna today. And this becomes the rule. Six days you shall gather it, the manna, but on the seventh day, which is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, on it there will be none, no manna. It came about that on the seventh day, some of the people, ooh we know who they were, same two guys, according to our tradition, some of the people went out to gather manna. They're like, I don't know, let me see if there's any manna scattered around. But of course, they did not find any. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to observe my commandments and my teachings? Um, how long will you refuse to observe my commandments and my teaching? I don't think he means you, Moses. I think he means how long will the people not listen to me? I told them, don't leave it over. They le- on the weekday, they left it over. I told them, don't go and gather it on Shabbos. They went out to try to gather it. Th- why aren't they listening? How long are they going to refuse my, my teachings, my commandments? See that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Let each man remain in his place let no man leave his place on the seventh day. God is, is reiterating to Moses, to reiterate to the people, it's very simple. It's very simple. Shabbat is Shabbat. The sixth day you get double. And that's it. No going out on Shabbat. You don't, you don't uh, No going out to collect, to gather, to cook, to bake, to prepare nothing, garnish. You cook on Friday, you have on Shabbos. So the people rested on the seventh day. They listened. The house of Israel named it manna. We already know that. Actually, no, we know that they originally called it manna because they didn't know what else to call it. Mana, this is prepared for us. But now they actually formally named it manna, and it was like coriander seed. It was white, and it tasted like a wafer with honey. That sounds pretty good. Wafers coated in honey? Not a bad deal. Couldn't it transform in your mind or something to whatever food you wanted or something? It does say that. It does say that, yeah. How, how, how does that um, reconcile with this, that it tasted like a wafer with honey? I forget already where, where that teaching, that it could taste like anything is derived from, but there are other verses that point to that, and that's how, it, I guess, maybe there's a few verses that have distinctions of, of, of what it tasted like, and maybe that's the solution, is that it tastes like whatever you wanted it. So clearly here, somebody had honey wafers on their mind. Okay, Moses, Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded. Let, oh, listen to this. Let an omer full of it, of the manna, like a full amount, three and a half pounds, be preserved for your generations in order that they see the bread that I fed you in the desert when I took you out of the land of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take one jug, a nice big, I picture those, um, like a mason jar, like a nice big mason jar, and put there an omer full of manna in in your mason jar and deposit it before the Lord to be preserved for your generations. Keep it in a holy space. It's kind of like a a time capsule. You know, you put like something from from an era. Keep the manna in a jug. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron deposited it before the testimony to be preserved. Ultimately, it ended up being placed inside the... It was either inside the ark or next to the ark. It was either inside or right, ne- or right outside, but next to it was this mana, Or maybe on the ledge. I forget already where it was. It was in close proximity. <coughs> ultimately, not now, because they didn't have a temple. They didn't have a tabernacle. There was no ark yet. But ultimately, it was put in the holiest space. And the children of Israel ate the manna for 40 years. By the way, this is the Torah foreshadowing the fact that it would be a 40-year journey. Because we, we haven't read any of the story about why it took 40 years, the sin of the spies. None of that has happened yet. But the Torah is giving us um, the narrator, if you will, is telling us the, the bigger picture. By the way, this was eaten for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land, Israel. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And the Torah also mentions, the narrator says, the omer is a tenth of an apha. In case you're measuring it and you know what an apha is, an omer is one-tenth of an afa, one and a half kilos, which is about three and a half, a little bit more than one and a half kilos, which is about three and a half pounds. Okay, so that's about the manna. Let's continue. Um, the entire community, the children of Israel journeyed from the desert of sin. To their travels by the mandate of the Lord. They kept on moving. They encamped in refeed them. And once again, there was no water for the people to drink. Remember at the last place? Well, two places ago, the waters were bitter. So they had to throw wood into the water. And then they came to a place with 12 water fountains and 70 palm trees. So life was good. But now they're in refeed them, And once again, there's no water. Not only bitter water, there's just no water. So the people quarreled with Moses. They didn't get the the message before. They're complaining to Moses. Not only complaining, they're fighting with Moses. And they said, give us water that we may drink. There's punctuation missing here. There should be some sort of punctuation after the word drink. So Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Again, why, why are you looking at me, number one? And number two, why are you testing the Lord? Just ask, don't challenge. The people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and they said, why have you brought us up from Egypt to make me and my children and my livestock die of thirst? Again, always going back to the Exodus. Who wanted this? Who asked for it? Why would you do this? Now we're suffering. We're all going to die. Our Us, our family, our livestock. It's terrible. Blah, blah, blah. Um... Okay, so Moses. So the people are not letting up. They're complaining. It's getting more and more intense. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, "What shall I do for this people? Like, what do you, what, what do you want?" Me? So now Moses is getting irritated. The people are irritated. So now he's getting irritated. He says, "What am I? What, what shall I do for this people? Just a little longer, and they will stone me. They're going to kill me. There, there's a mob building. They're going to take me out." It's complicated. It's a complicated relation. Not easy being a leader. Not easy being a Moses. Let's put it that way. The Lord said to Moses, "Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders, as we mentioned before, seventy elders, and take into your hand your staff, with which you struck the Nile and go. So take the miracle stuff. Take the elders, and go. Now behold, I shall stand there before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock." So here he was told to hit the rock. Later on in history, 40 years later, he was told to talk to the rock, to speak to the rock. But here he was told to hit the rock with the staff. And water will come out of it. Water from a rock. It's crazy. And the people will drink. And the people will drink. Again, there's punctuation missing. There should be a period after drink. So Moses did so before the eyes of the elders of Israel. He hit the rock. And out of the rock came water, which is absolutely wild. He named the place Masa, testing, and Meribah, quarreling, because of the quarrel of the children of Israel and because of their testing the Lord, saying, is the Lord in our midst or not? So he called that place that ultimately ended with a miracle, Masa and testing and quarreling. They tested the Lord, they tested His patience, they quarreled with the Lord. With the Lord, they quarreled with Him. There was a lot of contention. Um, oh, sorry, contentiousness in that space, in that in that place. And they questioned even: Is God with us? Is the Lord with us? Is the Lord in our midst or not? They ultimately asked: Is God even here? Or are we bound to all die in the desert? In in the defense of the people, it's got to be very vulnerable to be out a few million strong in middle of a desert without any plan, without any plan that you know of, right? I, I mean, God had a plan. God let Moses in on some of the plan, but imagine the people. It's a, what, it's a little bit hard to be in the dark and not know and, and just trust. It's, it's, it's not easy. All right. Well, on, on the heels of questioning if God is with us or not, what comes next is Amalek. And Amalek, according to um, Jewish teachings, Amalek is gematria. The numerology of Amalek is the same as the word safek, which means doubt, D-O-U-B-T, doubt. When a person doubts Hashem, that's Amalek. And it literally comes on the heels of questioning, is God with us or not? And it's easy to point fingers at those people, but in our, if we want to be honest with ourselves, we also have moments of questioning. Not moments of, oh, God is for sure not here, but moments where we might ask the question, is God listening? Is God with me? All right, is God going to help? We, we question sometimes. And we have to understand that that questioning, although it might be normal, is a malik that has to be Fought with. In other words, we have to internally push back anytime we question. Right? Questions are okay, but at some point the question might be unhealthy, and those we have to push away and re- and, and reiterate to ourselves our faith. The numerology, by the way, works out like this: Safek, Samach is sixty, Pay is eighty. That's one forty. And Kuf is 100, 240. Okay, 240. Remember that number. Amalek, Ayin is 70. Mem is 40. That's 110. Lamet is 30, which is 140. And Kuf, Amalek, Kuf is 100, 240. They both equal the number 240. Amalek, Safek, when you doubt, it's Amalek, it's your enemy. Doubt is not healthy, cynicism, you know, that uh, ambivalence. These are all things that we need to take seriously and, and, and push back against. So in the physical incarnation, there was actually a nation called Amalek. The spiritual idea is what I share with you. Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rufidim. Moses said to Joshua, pick men for us, select an ar- draft an army, and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand up, uh, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him to fight against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur, Moses' nephew, Hur was Miriam's son. They, so Moses, his brother, and his nephew ascended to the top of the hill. The hill was overlooking the battlefield. It came to pass that when Moses would raise his hand, Israel would prevail. When Moses lifted his hands up, The people saw it, they saw the hands, they looked up to heaven, they remembered Hashem, and the the battle turned in their favor. And when he would lay down his hand, Amalek would prevail. Right, when he put down his hand. Now Moses' hands were heavy. So they took a stone and placed it under him, and he sat on it. So number one, he sat down, and number two, Aaron and Hor supported his hands. One from this side, one from this side, one from that side. They lifted his hands up, so he was with his hands in faith until sunset. Amazing, not that the hands Rashi clarifies and their sages clarify, not that the hands were miracle hands. It wasn't a magic trick. It was a reminder of who's in, of, of that Hashem's in control, and that was a symbolism. Okay, Joshua weakened Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Weakened, maybe it means um, slew slayed, slew. The Lord said to Moses, so basically they defeated Amalek. That's the short of the the story is they defeated Amalek with the edge of the sword. The Lord said to Moses, inscribe this as a memorial in the book, Torah, and and recite it into Joshua's ears, again foreshadowing that Joshua would be the next leader, that I will surely obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from beneath the heavens. Amalek will ultimately be vanquished. Then Moses built an altar and he named it the Lord is my miracle. That's a nice name for an altar. The Lord is my miracle. And he said, for there is a hand on the throne of the eternal. That, sorry, for, for there is a hand on the throne of the eternal that there shall be a war for the Lord against Amalek from generation to generation. And that means basically that as God lives, so to speak, There will be a war against Amalek in every generation. And as I mentioned before, it's not a physical war. We're not talking about a physical war against Amalek. We're talking about the battle against the inner doubt. I mean, it could come from external sources. Like somebody says, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Suddenly you're so religious. Like, oh, you're eating kosher now. And then somebody like plants seeds of doubt in your own mind. Or you might ask yourself, like what, like, what am I doing? I'm so excited about My goal here, by the way, is not to plant any seeds of doubt. I'm just saying that this might happen. So we have to be very vigilant to not let those thoughts or doubts fester and, and, and get too big. Because it's like cold water. You know, like every the expression, like, pour cold water on, a, on an idea. You're very excited. And you have an idea and someone's like, nah, it's never going to work. And you're like, and then you give up even though it might have been a great idea. But you let that voice of cynicism get to you, destroys the whole thing. So it's very important to keep with the passion, to keep, you know, and to when when we feel like there's a little doubt creeping in, we should look at it as, that is the enemy to my progress, and I need to push back against that, against that Amalek doubt. That's a healthy way to do it. So that's the perpetual war against Amalek. The Torah says never forget. Never forget that there's always a chance for Amalek to rear its cold head, so to speak, and cool things down. The example that's brought in in the Medrash, there was a hot bath, like a very hot, like hot water. No one could get inside. No No one could stay. It's too hot one guy, one reckless individual jumps in. And once he jumps in, he cools it down, and then everyone jumps in. You have the little, the little cynical thought that just ices over everything. So it's always that first cynical negative thought that could spoil a good thing. So we have to be careful with that we're never going to be perfect. That's for sure. That we know already. That we don't need Torah to tell us that, but we know that from our own experience. We're never going to be perfect. The goal is not perfection. But the goal here is awareness. Know when you're riding high, when things are good, expect Amalek to show up as if on cue Amalek strides into the scene and says, maybe not. Eh. You're very excited, eh, take it easy. Take it easy, right? You want to do a mitzvah? Why do you need to do it today? Do it tomorrow. All of that is a malik. So we, if, as long as we have the, the awareness, we can be better prepared and we can handle that better. If we're unaware, that's when it becomes really dangerous because then we're taken by surprise and then you know, it, can, it can vanquish us and take away from our energy with the element of surprise. We don't want to be surprised. So Torah says, expect a Malik around every turn. Expect the challenge to present itself. Okay, that takes us to the end of the parsha. So there's a lot of drama that we did today. We did it quickly. We didn't, you know, we had a three readings and we didn't go into much rashi inside. I threw in a bunch of rashis, by the way, and Madrashan and Kabbalah and Chassidus as we went along. The the highlights that I have are number one, life is a bit sweeter with Torah's perspective. Number two, 12 paths. 12, 70 facets, 70 palm trees, 12 paths. You got a path for every tribe. We don't have to be exactly like the other guy. We can be unique and individual and have a connection with our source um, in, when I, I'll say in the same way, but differently, but an equally strong connection to our source. We never have to replicate anyone or anything else. Um, The next lesson I took is the idea of prayer. If we have something to say, say it to Hashem. No need to gang up against Moses. I don't know what that would mean practically nowadays, but I think it's an interesting... Maybe we do this. You know, maybe take God out of this for a second. Like, people get very angry when their flight is canceled. And they start, like, yelling at the person behind the counter as if they have anything to do with it, right? It's like, my flight is canceled. Don't you know how important it is, this, this trip? And the person's like, I mean, uh, okay. I mean, yes, I can empathize, but like you're really shouting at the wrong person. So, you know, maybe there's a bit of a similarity there. They're, they're, they're shouting at the rep, Moses. Moses is like, listen, if you want something changed in the script, go to, go to the author, Go to the creator. Don't, and, I would, and I would recommend don't be angry. Like, ask for what you need. Don't, don't approach it from like this, this anger place. But yeah, you're speaking. So the message for us in a constructive way is if we want something in our script to be changed, there's a method. It's called tefillah. It's called prayer. Sometimes, as we learned at the beginning of this week, we have to just march forward and not worry about the ocean in the way. Just keep on, keep on keeping on. Sometimes we got to petition the uh, the author to change things. Either way, complaining is not going to get us anywhere. All right, so that's the next message. And the final message is about Amalek. It's about being careful to not let those doubts fester too much. Because too much doubt is not a good thing. Okay? Some messages to take into Shabbos. Good? Makes sense? Yes. Well, I just have a comment. So. Yeah, Joy. It also seems to me that the children of Israel are called children because they kind of act like children, but they also always have to be protected and educated. Yes. And they came from slavery. Right. And this experience in the desert, they knew nothing about God and God's ways. Right. And they had to learn and be taught how I, to be Jews. I love that. I love that. So we can look at this story with a little bit more empathy a little bit, right? Because I'm being a little harsh, right? You're saying very, I think very accurately, they it's not their fault, right? They didn't have faith. Ooh, we're not we can't wag a finger at them. What? How were they supposed to know? We, are the beneficiaries of thousands of years of history as a people, and we can look at these stories and, and learn from them. They were the first ones living it. They were out in a desert. What did they know from faith? What did they know from God? What did they know about the process? Good. So it's it's more about an education than it is about blaming them. I like I like that take. It's a healthier take. I like that. Good. Also, also patience for the from wednesday when we read about when israel when the sea opened and there was all the jewels there from the egyptians i mean i don't i don't look at it like they were being materialistic i mean they were supposed to take all the gold and silver and jewels from the egyptians right god had said right right and then also i mean and they would use it theoretically to build the mishkin correct correct so i'm surprised that they were hushed away from doing that. Seems like Moses said, at this point, you got enough. By the way, by the way, Moses used this in his defense of the Jewish people by the sin of the golden calf. The Medrash says that God said to Moses, what did you expect? Sorry, Moses said to God, what did you expect? You gave them so much gold. How-? Of course, they were- this gets back to what Joy said about a child, Right. Of course they were going to mess up. You gave them too much. It's like you give a kid a, you give a 17-year-old a sports car that, you know, um, whatever. You have to know how to drive them. You can't just, it, it requires, you know, you give for the first time. Of course they're going to crash it. Like, what was your expectation? You gave them too much gold. Anyway. So, but I, I know that wasn't exactly your point. Your point was, why did he cut them off? If this was a good thing, I guess at some point you can have too much of a good thing, and, and ultimately. Needed to get out for safety too, I think. Safety and also, at, you know, the clock is ticking. We got Sinai. Oh. Hello, we gotta go. Right? That we got. Years we <laughs> got a few more weeks. We gotta. We can't just stay here and like bask in the in the jewelry. We gotta. We gotta go. There's a t- Like King Solomon says, there's a time for this and a time for that. A time... But it seems like a waste that it was just left there. I don't know. Honestly, maybe it's still there. Maybe we can take a field trip. <laughs> right. Maybe we'll take a field trip. Find, find out right. where this treasure is. Let's, uh, let's do some... Unf- let's finish some unfinished business. All right. Great. Good Shabbos. It's great seeing you. Um, have a wonderful and peaceful Shabbos. With, um, with the riches, all of the spiritual and material riches, all of the dough, right? The double portion of dough should indeed be manifest for all of us and, uh, and just tremendous blessings. All right, we'll see you all soon. Take care, everybody. Have a good Shabbos. Bye.